0: from Washington, DC. This is the Tightrope. I'm your host, Dan Smolin. In this episode, we meet Eva Grodberg, a successful corporate escapee from the advertising and media spaces who turns her lifelong love of world travel into a meaningful and profound second act career. We learn how she transferred her work skill from one career into a successful new one as founder of Epic Experiences, an experiential travel company providing uniquely crafted vacations to discriminating travelers. I spoke to Eva via Skype from her offices in New York City. Uh, Before we get into all our questions for you, I just was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from your hometown, and a little bit about your background.
1: Sure. Um, I grew up in Union, New Jersey, which is about 15 minutes from New York City. Um, I had parents who really believed in cultural enrichment. Almost every weekend, we would go into the city to see art exhibits, Broadway shows, museums, or other attractions. And my parents were Francophile, so we always had a series of au pair, mother's helpers from France. When I was 15, I was lucky enough to live with a family of our favorite au pair, Jacqueline, and that was my first solo international trip. I flew to France alone, connected in England, um, then flew to France, and even though I was kind of supervised living with them, I was really much on my own. And that was, you know, a great first travel experience. After a summer session at Cornell, while I was still in high school, I opted to go to Ithaca College's School of Communications. I just loved Ithaca. And after that, I had a couple of entry-level administrative jobs and then spent 30 years successfully selling advertising in magazines and some digital, culminating in 13 years at USA Weekend's. In March 2015, I became a full-time travel specialist focusing on luxury experiential travel.
0: Now, for our listeners who are freaking out over what Eva just said, when we were young, (laughs) 15-year-olds went alone to Europe, and the parents didn't really worry that much, at least not as much as now. Times have changed.
1: Definitely. You know, my parents were very protective. Uh, We never went skiing. We never did anything that was perceived as dangerous. But for some reason, me getting on a plane and going to Europe by myself didn't freak them out. In fact, they actually said, you know, if you can figure out a way to leave your luggage at the airport, you should go into London for a few hours. And I did not do that. I had like a six hour layover. I was staying at the airport.
0: You know, that's so funny. I didn't travel to Europe until I was in my 20s, but I did at that age travel alone. I often went skiing in Vermont all by myself with family friends. And my parents knew that I was responsible enough to get on the Amtrak in D.C. and disembark in White River Junction, Vermont without any incident. And I'm sorry for my my kids' generation now, which are so overly chaperoned that they don't have the experience to try to figure things out on their own. So maybe someday we'll return to a more autonomous set of values for our kids.
1: Maybe. I so, think our parents were brought up during wartime or right after wartime and they were used to things being a little bit more dangerous. I don't know. I don't know. I have I th- no
0: theory. I, I think our parents probably just wanted to solve the books, <laughs> <laughs> learn the skills and, and figure it out. Before we go any further, Eva, I want you to take me back to Union, New Jersey, to your little bedroom where little Eva dreamt at night about what she wanted to do when she grew up. What was your first memory of a vision of what, did you, what you wanted to do when you were a, a grown-up grown person? rather?
1: Well, this might not be what you want to hear, but I was brought up to believe that I would marry well, that I would never have to work, that there'd be a prince that would come along and save me um, from a life of toil. And I mean, that's really the values that my mother brought me up with. She did tell me I should have something to fall back on. I remember saying that I wanted to be an art major in college, and she said, oh, no, you have to have a real career, something that, you know, will make you money if you don't find the prints, basically. At the same time, my father was always pushing me toward law or medicine. You know, he wanted me to go to law school or medical school and be a doctor or a dentist like him. Ah. And. An SAT prep counselor um, suggested communications was the right fit for me. And I looked at some schools in DC and Syracuse and Ithaca, um, but there was just no comparison. I wanted Ithaca mainly because I loved the area. It had a real bohemian lifestyle and really great indie bands. So looking back on it now, I realized I didn't have a direction and I always fell into something. Um, ad sales, mainly because I didn't want to work on Wall Street and it took really a long time to get in touch with what I wanted to do, which was travel, and finally I fell, or not really fell, but opted for
0: my dream career. That's so fabulous. So a little bit of sunlight for our listeners. Both Eva and I are uh, graduates of Ivica College, uh, Park School of Communications. We graduated around the same time. It was a, a very small program, and I, I'm eager to know what your experience was as you embarked on graduation and you thought to yourself, now what? What am I going to do? Could you tell our listeners about, uh, upon graduation, the path you set about to to find a job and what kinds of work you decided to go after?
1: Well, I was the editor-in-chief of the college newspaper um, early on, another thing I kind of just fell into by being in the right place at the right time, and for a while I thought it was journalism, but then there were a few incidents at college where suddenly the New York Times was calling me for comment, and I realized I don't want that responsibility. And. During my time, I think it was my senior year, these two media department guys from Ogilvy and Mather came up to Ithaca to do a special short like two credit course on media planning and buying, which oh, i didn 't right. even really know existed mm-hmm. and something about that really registered with me and After I graduated, I really well before I graduated, I really thought I wanted to work at an ad agency in the media department and i did a lot of interviewing at new york ad agencies and over and over and over again um either the managing or hiring manager or the hr department told me i needed to go to katherine gibbs and take a typing course because oh i didn't type fast enough yeah it was kind of ridiculous um but in those days that's what women did we were administrative assistants And I grew up in a town with all women who went to work as secretaries after school. Very few of them were college-bound. And not to denigrate them, because they're all probably a lot more successful, but the reality is is I did not want to be a secretary. I didn't want to go to Catherine Gibbs and learn how to type and take dictation. So I went to a place called Katz Communications, Mm -hmm. which was a media rep firm. There it was more about how fast you answer the phone phone how well you dealt with situations and problems and i was a television um sales assistant to a media rep and they really didn't care how fast i typed so once again i kind of fell into something at cat's communications and My second boss said, "You're not going to be a sales assistant forever. Why don't you think about going into magazine ad sales? Because television ad sales—they'll never promote from within. They—they really didn't believe that anyone who took an assistant job was sales material." So I applied. Yeah, I applied at Ziff. Well, I applied at a lot of places for uh, magazine sales jobs. But at that time, Ziff Davis had just began publishing all of those computer magazines, PC Magazine. Right. I can't remember all of the others, but there were probably ten of them. And everyone who worked at their special interest magazines, yachting, boating, skiing, all jumped into the computer group because they saw this is the wave of the future. There's a lot of money to be made here. And they needed people to sell those special interest magazines. So I you know, got a job doing that.
0: You got a reputation for being very, very successful at it. I'm wondering if you could tell me what you liked about the time when when things are going well on the job. After many years
1: of you know moving from magazine to magazine, I managed to get a um, a job at the direct response division of USA Weekend, which was a Gannett publication. Sure. And there I, you know, I went from being basically a phone, a telemarketer, to a real advertising salesperson where I had a territory, I had a huge expense account. They didn't tell me what it was in the beginning. And then Mm -hmm. one year in December, they were like, you know, you have like $30,000 left to spend on your expense account. I kept asking them, what's my account? Because I had no idea i had about a five thousand dollar a month expense account to fly to various places and entertain clients wow. so then i really became skillful at using it and taking clients to the best restaurants and really building relationships with them because i was entertaining them and taking them to see the rolling stones or you two. Um, and at the height of my ad sales career i was billing about twenty million twenty Whoa. million five in magazine advertising in a bad economy And that was because it was direct response and the ads were expensive and they worked so well that usually on Sunday, you know, the magazine would hit and Monday at 10 a.m. I'd get a call from the client saying, this ad works so well. I want you to renew it. And these were ads that were, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. So it really made me believe in what I was selling. You know, it's nice that, you know, a company like Procter & Gamble will run an ad and see some kind of lift at retail. But it's different when somebody can run a $25,000 ad and make $2 million profit. And you really feel like I'm selling something that's working for my clients, which is really important to me.
0: So things went well until they didn't. And at some point in your experience in media, something must have changed that changed your perception about either your success on the job or the company in general. I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners when you started to perceive that things were changing and maybe you would have to make a change in your career.
1: Well, around the millennial, it became obvious, or the millennium, it became obvious that the internet and digital ad sales were where everything was moving and Mm -hmm. magazines were starting to fold. And at USA Weekend, we kept asking our management to give us something digital. Mm -hmm. There was a USA Weekend online, but basically they were just taking content out of the magazine and reprinting it online. So there really wasn't anything that was enhanced that we could sell as a multi-title kind of media proposition. And they just couldn't seem to develop a strong digital component for us to sell. I was in the case where I was billing a lot, and I always figured as long as I continued to produce, I would be fine. Mm -hmm. One day in 2011, we were called into a meeting where we were told that our beloved brilliant ad director had been replaced by this brash guy in Chicago. And that we, we would be Yeah, and we would be folded under the USA Today umbrella. And USA Weekend, you know, was really successful, probably one of the most successful media properties that Gannett owned. I wouldn't say the same about USA Today. It Mm -hmm. restructured every six months. They had Mm -hmm. new management every six months. Then one day they moved our publisher out of his window office into a teeny cubicle with no sunlight. And that's when I should have gotten out. I should have known then Start interviewing. But I was stupid, and all I'll say is there's a reason why USA Today restructures every six months, and um, I'll leave it at that.
0: Does it even exist anymore, USA Today weekend?
1: Yeah. Well, USA Today exists. They folded USA weekend. Um, You know, not to say that I was – filling the whole magazine, but I was filling the whole magazine. Um, When they had that meeting in 2011, they decided that they would take a dual audience magazine, 50% female, 50% male, and they would rebrand it as a woman's magazine. Mm -hmm. And the media buyers at the huge ad agencies just weren't buying that, and they weren't buying the space. So I literally had to fill every space in the magazine every week so that it could go to print. And... Within two months after they ousted me, they were done. They folded the magazine. So a lot of people lost their jobs. It was terrible. You know, I really feel for the good people.
0: It's amazing. You know, I think about 30 years ago when I worked um, in the agency space in New York City, how many of the technologies don't even exist anymore? There was no digitization. Media, media came in print form. Uh, generally speaking, my, my clients were all direct marketers. Uh, I had Dreyfus Mutual Funds as a major client. I used to, I used to schlep uh, hard cardboard mechanicals, 45 pounds of mechanicals, down uh, Madison Avenue to get on the train back to Connecticut where I lived. Uh, those days are gone. And yeah. it's sort of a cautionary tale for people that you have to keep your eyes open to the changes in technology, but also the changes in zeitgeist.
1: Exactly. And getting out of one disrupted industry into another, you know, sometimes I have to question my sanity.
0: So when you left the corporate world, what pivoted you into becoming an entrepreneur?
1: When I left USA Weekends, I went to another magazine and I hated every minute of it. And one day I called my old boss, that ad director I mentioned before, and I said, you know, I think I'm going to be looking for a job. Would you mind if I um, used your name as a reference? And he said, come work for me. I can't bring you on as staff, but I would love to have you represent my magazine, because he had already moved on to another huge Sunday newspaper magazine. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'd love to have you represent my magazine, because I know you're a go-getter, and I know you'll go out there and produce. So... Form an entity and come work for me as an independent contractor. So I went out, I formed an LLC to represent mm-hmm. his title. And I should backtrack a little. Before any of this happened, before I left USA Weekend, I had launched a blog in 2011 called SuitcaseReady.com to mm-hmm. share my love of travel, how to organize one's own trips. And as a result, I had really connected with the New York travel media community. And it just, um, you know, it was a creative outlet, but it was just something, you know, that, as I said, connected me with a whole new com- community here in New York. And it just... All kind of happened from there. My father had founded a dental conference on a Caribbean island. Mm -hmm. And after he passed away, Mm -hmm. I inherited that meeting. So I began planning travel for the dentist Uh who attended the meeting. And I had always done his marketing, I was his webmaster. um, But suddenly, my father was, you know, a dentist. So he was a little old fashioned about marketing. In the olden days, dentists never advertised, that was a heinous thing. So I took over his dental meeting in the first year I doubled it in the second year I tripled it so I had a nice little business going with the dental meeting and that's when I said you know maybe it's time to think about doing travel full-time because booking travel for the dentist was so much fun it didn't even feel like work because I love planning trips so that's kind of how the whole travel business Evolved from you know thirty years of selling magazine advertising.
0: So let's talk about the skill path here. Three things happened. You had a lifelong love of travel that went back to when you were a little kid. You're an amazing writer, and I loved Suitcase Ready. I, I thought your narrative was wonderful. So so again, love of writing, love of travel, and a really good entrepreneurial sense and excellent skill at at managing outcomes allowed you to start Epic experiences. And I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners a little more deeply what that's about and what what your mission is with Epic Experiences. Probably every
1: week I meet somebody who says to me, they're still travel agents, haven't you been replaced by the internet? And in reality, there's been a resurgence in travel agents, and it's been driven by the millennials, which mm-hmm. is so interesting because they're the ones who are the faster adopters of technology. But I kind of believe there's two kinds of travel. There's cheap travel and there's good travel. And there are enough clients out there who want good travel. They want these special experiences. They want to travel through Tuscany with a sommelier who will take them to wineries they'd never find on their own. Or when they go to India, they don't want to just go to the Taj Mahal. They want to go to the spice plantations. Or, Mm. you know, they want to do just different kinds of things than what they can easily book themselves on online and I create things for them that they might not even know existed. You know, I have somebody who's going to Sardinia and she said, you know, we'd like to take a catamaran cruise. I found this amazing day sale for her where they're going to, you know, visit all of the little islands around Sardinia. She never would have found that by herself. So that's kind of where I excel in really going beyond what anybody is going to find packaged online. The other thing is last week I was at a bank and I was talking to my banker and this woman overheard us and she said, you're a travel specialist. Do you know we booked our own girls vacation and ended up at a family resort?
0: So, oh, you know, when you,
1: <laughs> yeah, when you look at a place like Jamaica or Riviera Maya, Mexico, where there's hundreds of resorts, How is somebody who's booking themselves online to save money going to pick the right resort? You know, if you go by what's the cheapest, you're going to be in a place that smells musty, where the food's terrible. Where I'm in these areas several times a year, just checking out resorts. I don't travel like a normal person. When I go to Jamaica, I'll see 20 hotels in three days. And I'll stay at four different hotels. So I'm really getting experience of what's out there so I can best direct my clients.
0: Tell our listeners some of the destinations you send your clients to
1: you know, they tell us to specialize. And the reality is, is I've been a world traveler before I became an agent. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for me to say, I'm only going to focus on France, or I'm only going to focus on St. Bart. Right. But what I think what, these all have in common is moderate luxury, Um, and I don't mean private plane, you know, private islands in Fiji, although I can book that, but normally the kinds of places I book are a lot of Mexico, either beach areas or the colonial cities where there's cooking schools and hacienda hotels, or the Caribbean, um, I know St. Bart, St. Martin, Jamaica, St. Lucia, San Juan really, really well, and then there's other places that I'm a specialist in, you know, like Aruba that I haven't been to, but I can definitely direct people to the right properties. And then in Europe, my um, specialties are more areas with wine, mm-hmm. Western Europe, France, Italy, Spain, but also I lived in London. I know mm-hmm. the UK well. I know Ireland well, Iceland. Switzerland, but when it comes to you know, Eastern Europe, Prague, Budapest, I just don't know those areas as well. But I work with specialized local suppliers who I wouldn't hesitate to book those areas with because I trust those people. Same thing with Croatia. Croatia's really hot. I've got Croatians that I book Croatia with. Wow. Um, And then other areas are a little bit more further afield. Um, I book a lot of Dubai and the deserts near Dubai and Abu Dhabi and Oman. And the really exotic islands like French Polynesia, Tahiti, Bora Bora, Lataha, the Maldives, which, you know, There's some question about whether one should book now because of the regime in power, and there is some unrest there. So now I'm kind of looking towards Fiji. And then the other thing I book a lot of is India. I have an amazing supplier in India who I've traveled with, so I see how they operate, and I wouldn't hesitate to book any part of India or Nepal or
0: Sri Lanka through him. What kinds of mistakes are are people still making when they book and embark on travel?
1: Um, you know something that I mentioned before, which is they they book the cheapest thing they can find, and then mm-hmm. they come home feeling like they had a mediocre trip because right. you know they you 're paying a lot to fly somewhere, yes, and just picking a hotel based on the price, it just doesn 't make sense because if you spent maybe a hundred dollars more, you would get something amazing. And then the other thing they do is they book the cheapest air. Mm-hmm. I I did this with my brother and his former wife and their kids. They wanted to go to Las Vegas, and she said, well, I found it for $10 a person less. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, I saw that air. And that air had you connecting at O'Hare, one of the busiest airports mm-hmm. in the world, in 30 minutes. You were going to drag my six- and eight-year-old nephew and my brother, who never wants to get off the couch, through an airport (laughs) in 30 minutes. And in that airport, you can be delayed coming in, you could be delayed coming out, but you're not delayed in the terminal, you're delayed on the tarmac. So, If you miss that 30-minute connection, you're going to miss a day of your or a night of your hotel in Las Vegas. You're going to end up having to find a hotel near the airport in Las Vegas. It's going to cost you a lot more than ten dollars to have a safe two-hour connection. And so, I always believe in booking safe air, not just what's considered legal air.
0: Right. I'd rather be on safe, too. I'll pay extra. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I don't even, you know, when I say safe, I just mean a safe connection. You know, in places like O'Hare, Miami, Houston, you can't connect there in an hour. No. So to have, to pay a little bit more to have a safe two-hour connection, to me, is worth it. And the other thing is I'm always looking for flights that maximize the client's time at the destination. Right. I did a destination wedding in uh, Riviera Maya at a hotel that was an hour and a half from the airport. And a lot of the guests booked a 6 a.m. flight Home, which meant they had to leave the resort at like one, two a.m. in the morning to be back to the airport for the you know the three-hour check-in that they asked for at that airport, which oh. sometimes you need, sometimes you don't. Right. But you know, for twenty dollars more, they could have flown out at one p.m. And, and gotten to actually sleep the night in the room that they're paying six hundred dollars a night for. It just you know doesn't make sense.
0: It doesn't. Um,
1: and then you know the other thing is. I had honeymooners in Thailand and Bali this year, and there was a volcanic eruption. And the airline canceled. I mean, they booked their flights. I wouldn't have advised this airline, but they booked the flights. And the airline canceled one of the legs because of the volcano. They just stopped serving Bali. Oh, Oh, my gosh. And if they had done that themselves, I don't know what they would have done. I was able to get them from Bali to Jakarta, where that airline was flying back to Shanghai so that they could get home. But otherwise, they might still be there, you know? The long, the short answer to that is thinking cheap instead of thinking smart.
0: Why is experience so important to consumers today?
1: ASTA, which is the basically the lobbying association for travel agents. They do a lot more than lobbying, but that's one of the important things they do. They just came out with a study, and they said for all this talk about experiential travel, what most people want to do on vacation is relax.
0: Mm -hmm. And there's
1: nothing wrong with that. I book a lot of trips that people can just relax on the beach. I'll always suggest something different that they can do so that out of a seven day beach vacation, maybe they'll go to a Mayan rune or maybe they'll go to a rum factory. Or, you know, I book a lot of river cruises, so there's a component of relaxing and then they can sightsee and delve into history if they want. But, you know, there's really nothing wrong with people going away to relax because we're just also overworked. But these days there are a lot of clients that want something a little bit more compelling and a lot of what I bring to this is um knowledge of wineries, knowledge of tequila producers, things that are just aren't in guidebooks that you'd never visit on a you know an organized bus tour getting into museums before or after hours to avoid the crowds or having a private guide to explain to you what's important about Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel and why you should even care about it. I had a guide in Rome who was amazing, who took me into a church, and I know myself, I would have walked into that church, looked around and walked out. Mm -hmm. She knew that beneath this church there were crypts. And there were Roman, you know, floor tiles, and there were Roman, um, I don't know what they call them, that's where they stored salt, you know, because salt was so important in that time of their lives. So people are definitely more interesting and more interested now, you know, they do things like dive and go helicopter skiing, and don't mind hiking eight hours to see gorillas, and... You know, this is the kind of travel I really like to develop for people. It's how I was brought up traveling by my parents, you know, driving around in the Pyrenees looking for restaurants because mm. my mother read about something in the Food Lover's Guides of France. You know, I think maybe people just want to be extraordinary. They want to get more out of life, or maybe they really do just want social media and bragging rights for their Instagram feed. <laughs> I don't know what the reason is, but it's great. Which, whatever, whatever their motivation is.
0: I want to ask you about career transitions because you 've done it i 've done it. Many of our listeners are trying to do it, and they 're thinking about leaving a line of work that is lacking in meaning in exchange for something that is full of meaning. A lot of our listeners seek profound experience, and you 've successfully transitioned yourself to work where your acquired training and your subject matter expertise but also your love of traveling the globe are satisfied so To our listeners who come from all walks of life, they're young starting off, but they're also people who've had careers and are embarking on a second act. What do you have to say to them about how, through your experience, they may be able to pivot into something, a kind of work that maybe provides them an opportunity to make a difference, but they don't know how to make that happen for themselves?
1: I think the best thing they can do is speak to people already in the profession that they want to enter and find out what it really is about you know from the outside being a travel agent looks like a lot of free trips and fun (laughs) but the reality is is it can take three or four years of hard work before you're making a decent living Mm -hmm. and i mean you know ten twelve hour days and all weekend and i was told this by an agent before i started she said you will never be compensated fairly for the amount of time you're putting into this but it's almost like it's a calling and she was completely right you know i thought uh... Oh, with my proven track record of ad sales i'm going to be a star right away and it it takes a while to build a business and what people don't always realize is after all no matter what industry they want to be in they're in sales mm-hmm. and a lot of people think oh i'm really good at planning trips but they have to realize what they're doing yes is planning trips But really what they're doing is selling and finding clients 90% of what we do. and I recently spoke to a friend who wanted to be a travel agent. She knows every cruise line. I do not, Um, and she basically, it didn't occur to her that what she would be having to do is going out and finding clients. You cannot survive on your own network of friends. You don't want to book your friends and family. Um, They're the worst clients, so you really have to know (laughs) that what you're doing is sales and finding new clients. And one of the best things I did was join a BNI group. You know, mm-hmm. people think BNI is this cult, um, but the reality is, and I am not a joiner. I am not one to you know um, sit in a group of professional people in suits and and network. But it's the best way to find good clients outside your network. And you know, the whole philosophy is givers gain. The more you give to other people, right. the more you refer business to other people. The more it comes back at you, and I just mean more that people begin to trust you, you're building a huge network of people outside your immediate circle, and there is a lot of referrals to be gained. You know, it depends really on the industry. If somebody's a personal injury attorney, they might get one or two good referrals a right. year, but those one or two for, uh, referrals a year could be hundreds of thousands of dollars right. in revenue. Mm-hmm. So, it you know, it really depends on what they want to do. But I think what they really need to focus on is that sales and marketing is most and more about sales is most of what they're going to be doing, regardless of what the profession is.
0: Well, Eva, this has been a lot of fun. And I wanted to give our listeners an opportunity to find you. I'm sure listening to this episode, they're closing their eyes and visualizing bliss on uh, some beach in St. Bart's. So if one of our listeners wanted to find you, how would he or she do that?
1: Um, My website is epic with a dash or a hyphen experiences with the S on the end dot com or on Facebook at One Epic Experience.
0: Okay, very good. Eva Grodberg from Epic Experiences, thank you so much. And thank you for walking the tightrope.
1: Thank you so much, Dan. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks again to our guest, Eva Grodberg, for walking the tightrope with us. A link to her website is available on our podcast page at dansmolin.com. Do catch up with past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and on our podcast page at dansmolin.com. And please let us know what you think of the tightrope. Do suggest topics that you believe we should tackle in future episodes by writing us at info at dansmolin.com. From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm Dan Smolin, and do remember this, our best days lie ahead. Have a great and successful week, everyone.